Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives So excited for today's episode We got a returning guest Someone who I am so excited to talk to uh, Megan Murray Newberger was on the podcast just about a year ago, and I couldn't wait to talk to her then because she did something that so many people try to do, basically knock down a huge time goal in the marathon. For her, that was three hours, and she'd been knocking on the door, breaking for a long time. She had some near misses, (laughs) a lot of close calls, uh, and finally she did it, and I couldn't wait to talk to her then. And it was funny. I didn't expect to have her back on the show so soon to talk about knocking down more goals. Uh, you know, she's someone who, as uh, one of the heads of Believe in the Run and a complete shoe head, I figured she'd be on the show talking about shoes for sure. And she's just a phenomenal person, as you'll hear. It's just she's fantastic. But here we are a year later, and she is continuing to just knock down goal after goal. It's really exciting to see. And we had her on the show because here she is. Going under three, going under 250, sorry. And she did that at the Boston Marathon, which is even more challenging. Such a hard course for so many people. And I had her on to talk about not not do a race recap per se. She actually does one on her podcast, uh, Fuel for the Soul, which she co-hosts with Megan Featherston, who's been on this show before, a, a dietitian who specializes with her work in runners. That's a great podcast. They do a full rundown of their shared marathon experience in Boston. In this episode, we talk more about just what it's like with shifting goals and how you get one and then another one pops up and how you attack it and what you learn from one goal and you bring it to the next cycle and then the next cycle and just that that, prog- that process, especially coming from somebody who had such a hard time knocking down that first big goal. And it was so inspiring to see and what she learned from that and what she's taken from that experience and put it into more experiences. And um, as always, she is just so eloquent and just so darn smart that having her on the show at any time for any reason is always a positive. And this time was no different. So let's get into it with Megan. All right, we are back with Megan Murray Newberger back on the show. She was here last year and other times as well. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me back. This is really exciting. So you were on almost exactly a year ago. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but yeah, I guess it was. It's funny because this was one of those rare like COVID era moments where I was like, oh, that was like, usually it's like, oh, that was three weeks ago. It's like, no, that was 18 (laughs) months ago. Where like this time I was like, you know what? I don't know where I'd put the over-under on this one. I really wasn't sure where to look. I literally Googled your name slash rambling runner into Google to find it because I was like, I could be scrolling for days trying to find it. I'm not sure where it is. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. So last time you were on the show, this was really exciting because you had just achieved a huge goal that you had documented on social media and you had talked about many times about trying to break three hours in the marathon. And it was something that had, you know, you had tried and tried and tried. Those big round numbers have a certain gravity around it. And we talked about it a lot because you had done that. You had you had broken that barrier and it was an enormous thing for you. Once you had um, gotten, you know, basically gotten past the realization of like, all right, three-hour marathon, that's me. Now that you know, you've kind of like the, come down from the emotional lift that that, you know, reaching that goal had provided you. 
what was the what was it like for you to try to find something new or a new goal or something to attach yourself to because it had been at the forefront or seemingly had been at the forefront of your running for a while? Yeah, it's funny. I think it only took me uh, maybe 24 hours before I had the next goal in my mind. Like I was, I was like, okay, 255. Now I got to break 255. Like it was, it was pretty instantaneous. Um, I have zero chill when it comes to that. So yeah, I was ready to go sub 255 for my next goal. The disrespect to three hours had been in, <laughs> in your life for so long and you dumped him so fast and moved on so quickly. I know. Well, I was, I think I was ready to be done with that. Like it, it had been too long. We had spent too much time talking about sub three and I just wanted to move right on to the next one. And you were really close to 255 to begin with, because wasn't it, you ran 256 and 34 or something? Yeah. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, 256 something. Uh, so yeah, I was not too, not too far away from that. Definitely. So did you spend any time having like, oh, I almost got 255 or were you able to completely revel in the breaking three feeling? Um, you know, I think it was just, honestly, if I had seen anything with a two and then some numbers after it, I was going to be happy on that day. So I, I wasn't thinking too much about how much below three hours I was. It was just that I had finally legitimately done that. So did you feel like breaking 255 would be the, the process that breaking three was be, or did you feel like this was, this is just the next domino and you're going after it? I thought it was not going to be as challenging. Um, I felt like sort of those, like you were saying, and those whole numbers, like once you break through those barriers, I feel like then all of a sudden you have some momentum and you can keep going. It's almost like more mental, more of a mental battle than a physical battle to get over those those whole numbers. And then once you do, I feel like then you can sort of just, you know, keep going and 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 keep tackling the next goals. And we'll, we'll touch base on these kinds of questions several times in the podcast. But what were some of the things in the sub three journey, especially mentally, like you just mentioned that that was it was more of a physical, a mental hurdle than maybe a physical one at times. What were some of the things that you took from the sub three journey that you were able to hold on to as, you know, just th- things to keep in mind and things to learn from and, and uh, hold on to uh, for later races and, l- and later goals? Yeah, specifically on the mental side of things, I think one of the, one of the main takeaways I got from the Woodlands Marathon when I broke the three hours was that you're going to feel bad at some point in the marathon. And that doesn't mean that your race is over. Like you, chances are it might be really early in the race. It might be later in the race, but you're not going to, you're not going to feel amazing the whole time. And you can get through those dark waves and those dark times in the marathon and push past them and then still hit your goal. And so I think knowing that not everything was going to feel great the whole time going into these these events in the future was like really, really big. So when you think back to pre-Woodlands, before you broke three and before you'd really taken that lesson to heart, can you look back now and say, all right, this race at this moment I would do things differently or maybe again, maybe that you can do it without even regret because, you know, you have to learn the lesson at some point, but can you look back at specific moments and say that, that right there, I wasn't done. I just gave in without knowing it. And maybe that race could have been different. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a specific one. Actually, ironically, um, the marathon after the woodlands, I can think of a specific time where I mentally gave up 
um, before I needed to. And a few things had just gone wrong in the beginning of the race. Like I was, I made a, a last minute decision, which maybe wasn't the best idea, but to carry a, a water bottle with me with scratch in it so that I could hydrate and not have to use what was on course. And it was a brand new water bottle that I'd never used before. And the strap um, came out of the, the bottle came out of the handheld holder at like mile three or something. And right before this, I had a Martin in it that had fallen out at like mile two. So I had lost a Martin. My water bottle was falling off of my hand. And this was like mile four or five of the marathon. And at that moment, like all of the dark negative waves and thoughts just crept in. And I don't think I ever got over that. Yeah, I remember I remember that post and remember thinking like, oh my gosh, what a bummer. And like, you know, I mean, just, it's just such a long race. You know, and it's not like an ultra where you can be like, all right, get rid of this, grab a new one and, and all of that. Oh, my God, that that is frustrating. Let's talk about the whole like, all right, the bad patches in the marathon, because I think for some people who don't have the experience with this that you have, um, and I'm one of them. So this is not just some ambiguous person. This is me asking these questions (laughs) for me, and hopefully it helps other people as well. Um, People who used to maybe the 5K, 10K route, even the half marathon, I don't think quite this um, that is quite there, but where the pain is kind of like it kind of travels like in a linear path. Right. So like you're running the 5K, you're running the 10K, it, you're, you're redlining for a good amount of time. It builds, it builds, it builds, it builds. And then like you feel like you're about to die. You have this finishing kick from Lord knows where and then it's over. And I know you're not a big fan of 5Ks, but that's how it that's how it always seems to progress. Um, you know, the moral of, of almost every 5K story. The marathon, though, it is different. And I think people experience this on long runs as well. What's it like for you? How do you put imagery uh, behind that feeling, those bad patches where it isn't sort of some sort of linear progression where all of a sudden you're you know, at a cliff's edge and if you go faster, you'll fall over or anything like that. How do you, how do you visualize that feeling and, and, and how it uh, is going to potentially affect you? Yeah, so there's two things that I primarily do now. The first one is I always have like, I'm always trying to make myself laugh or find humor or something comical heading into a race, like something that I can think about that's going to make me laugh. So I always have like a whole bunch of those things in my mind going into a race. And then the second tactic that I always use is just breaking up the race. So no matter if it's so like the marathon Maybe there are landmarks or maybe there are sections I know where there's hills or maybe there are, you know, parts where it's really beautiful and I know I'm going to have crowd support or there's parts where I know it's going to be dull. And I have planned out like like those sections and what I need to do mentally to stay focused in them. And then if if maybe you start feeling badly before you expected to or all of a sudden, I think just saying like, like doing little things like swinging your arms more or just saying, put one foot in front of the other, just like these small little things that you can do in the moment to try and break yourself from that negative thought, um, helps a ton. All right. Can you give two examples of the, of, of your two examples? I guess an example for each of them, you know, the, the humor one and the landmark one. Um, so this one I told on my Instagram before, but, uh, so like I said, I like to have like all these funny, humorous things. And so there's a scene from Step Brothers or 
This is stepbrothers, I think, where, yeah, he starts yelling about how they're at a wedding and he's like, I didn't want salmon. I said it four times. And so I wrote no salmon on my wrist before the indie marathon. And I got to a point where I was like, man, I don't feel that great. And so I just, you know, look down, I see this. It, I literally have written no salmon on my wrist, which is, first of all, absolutely insane. And like, you can't, you can't help but laugh and think about like, how ridiculous is this thing that we're doing right now? Um, but it, it, it takes you out of the moment and out of, out of the pain that you might be feeling. I love that. All right. Give me a landmark one. Um, so in Boston, I guess, since that one just happened, I just kept telling myself, get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, like just get to the top of Heartbreak Hill. And so I think because that was my focus, it was like every little thing that happened along the way, it was like, we just have to get to this place. We just have to get to this place. Um, and that's just kind of what I kept repeating to myself, uh, until I got there and it, it worked out pretty well. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Let's just talk about the feeling of when when you feel like crap in these longer efforts. Again, whether it's race day or a long run, because I think they, they happen in both. And I know I've, I've experienced them many times in that feeling of like, all right, like I just feel like crap. It's over. Not over. Like I'm going to continue to run. But like me running at this pace is not going to happen anymore. I'm now going to plan B here. Um, and that's not always the case. Right. There's plenty of people. And I think you're one of them that you know, have, have, have figured out a way to, no, no, plan A is still very much in, in play here. This is just, this is somehow going to be temporary. Talk me, walk me through just the physical manifestation of getting through that experience because I'm not great at it and I'm still trying to learn. Shoot, I, was, I did it today in the long run. I was, I, was, I was kind of hitting a weird patch. I'm like, oh, what the heck, you know? So it's like, I'm like, is this real? Is it fake? Am I, is this, am I really, you know, going through all of the mental gesticulations? So walk me through that, uh, your mental processing as that's happening. Well, first, let me ask you, were you trying to hit a certain pace on your run today when you started to feel bad? To a point. So I wanted to be not marathon pace, but, you know, maybe five to 10 seconds per mile um, slower than marathon pace. So yes, I did. I did have a particular range in mind. Yeah. Um, I asked that only because I have found one thing that has helped me a lot is 
running on effort versus staring at your watch. And I know no one probably wants to hear that, but I think if you do it enough that you actually can get pretty good at it. And I noticed for me, if I was out on a long run and I wasn't hitting the paces that I wanted to be hitting and I looked at my watch and it was like 15, 20, 30 seconds off, that that turn that like my whole body like cinched up, like I got like worried and panicked and it made things worse. And then I just got slower. Whereas if I just went out there, based it on effort, maybe, you know, look down every once in a while to make sure I'm not totally off. Um, and then just try and held that effort and stay steady. That helped a ton. Like, because, and then sometimes you're having a phenomenal day and you're running faster than you thought you even could. And so it's sort of like a surprise when you're done with your run of like, Hey, how did it go? But as long as you're putting in the effort, you're going to have a good workout and you're going to gain fitness from it. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. So I don't look, I don't even have pace per mile as a setting on my watch. So I removed it as one of the options for like, I have the, the Coros Vertex 2. People who listen to this might not know what that means. May- Megan knows what this means because this is literally literally her business. Um, so you can change all the settings and there's a lot of adaptability. So I, it's not even an option. I completely took it off for the exact reasons that you mentioned. So it was much more like, uh-oh, legs are getting heavy. Uh-oh, I'm not feeling it. And it's funny because I like started to, this is not the match in a podcast. We're talking about <laughs> Megan, this podcast. But I, you know, basically for me, I, I found that I basically, in those situations, oftentimes get stuck into two groups where if I I can either run by effort and I'm just going to start slowing down because this effort now, you know, that's that's the whole point of how I'm feeling. Or I just say, no, like I'm going to speed up drastically. And sometimes that gets that's enough that that again, I'm not going to stay at that pace forever, but it does kind of launch me into this next phase of the running or this race or this workout where all of a sudden oh, it's, it kind of like clears the decks a little bit and I'm able to get through it. The problem is that sometimes it's easier said than done. Um, but like that was what happened today. And, you know, it just, you know, again, I don't think that's a, a, a winning strategy at all at all times, but it, but it did happen today. The the other tactic I will say, too, is if it's later in a run, I will check on nutrition and hydration because sometimes you have just literally run out of fuel. So that's always a good thing to check in on. Now, how has that worked for you over the past year? That was something we talked a lot about in our last podcast. And since that day, you have now launched a podcast with Meg Featherston called Fuel for the Soul. What a nice plan words. You're a fantastic writer. Your race recap on Instagram was like, it didn't belong in Instagram. It was like, it needed to be on like some other, like, I don't, I don't know, the Atlantic. It was really well written. Anyway, um, so Fuel for the Soul, it's really good. In fact, you did a recap with Megan, who also ran Boston, and that's out today or tomorrow, I should say, because we're recording on Thursday, April 21st. But um, so you've had experience in this journey with Megan and now hosting a podcast, hosting a podcast where you talk about it all the time. So in the past year, has anything changed in your nutrition, either pre-run, during the run, just in your daily life? How has that progressed, if, if at all? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely changed a bit and primarily that I have focused a ton on 
surrounding my runs with nutrition. So I think a lot of people in, in running, if they're just casual runners, you know, they think you run and then you can be rewarded with like, you know, a giant meal or whatever. Like it's always like the run and then the meal. And I've like totally switched that thought process to fueling the run for performance and then, you know, it's just a normal day or whatever. And so I have gotten really consistent with making sure that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I eat a graham cracker or two before every single run, whether it's an easy run or a workout. I am practicing my race day nutrition on all of my long runs that have marathon pace. Like I am constantly making sure that I am well fueled before and during runs, which I think well, I know has helped my performance like tremendously. And one thing that Megan advocates and so many people advocate, when I say Megan, Megan Featherston advocates and so many people in her field advocate is basically like on the run, have as much as you can handle, right? Mm -hmm. There's not like a, Hey, do every 30 minutes, every 40 minutes, every 25 minutes, right? There are certain benchmarks like, Hey, it would be great if you could X, Y, Z, but have as much as you can handle without having GI distress and things of that nature. Has that changed over time just from a, a tolerance perspective? Yeah. Um, because I am practicing with the nutrition during, um, during my long runs, I now feel like I can tolerate it way better during the race. In fact, this Boston marathon was the first time that I've ever been able to get down. I think so it was five Martins during and one before. So I got six Martins down. I've never gotten that many in during a race because I'm normally feeling either nauseous or I just can't fathom taking, taking that last gel down. And I think because I practice it so much in the, in the training block leading up to it, I was able to tolerate them during the race. And how do you spell Martin? I know some people listening to this are like, oh, I should check that out, but it's not spelled the way it's pronounced. Wait, and I just realized I'm saying it wrong. It's Morton because I just met those guys in Boston and I realized I've been saying it wrong this whole time. So it's Morton and it's M-A-U-R-T-E-N. Okay, gotcha. And what's the like the nutrition profile? You said you had you know five during and one at the starting line. A lot of these are similar, but not all of them. So like from a calorie perspective or you know that, that, that sort of thing. It's a hundred calories in a gel and 25 grams of carbs. Okay. Gotcha. So I, it's, you try to take them every 30 minutes. So it's like a 50 grams of carbs an hour. Um, they actually just came out with a study today that I saw that they're saying we can absorb 120 grams an hour of carbs, which they didn't think we could before. I just saw this. So I don't know how accurate and the data behind it is. But yeah, I really think it's like if you can get it down and your stomach can tolerate it, you're going to benefit from it. I also wonder for how many hours that lasts, right? <laughs> so it's true. one thing you're like, you ran your marathon in two hours and 48 minutes, which is remarkably fast. Congratulations. <laughs> There's some people in that course who ran it two hours slower than you were like, I cannot have 125 carbs <laughs> an hour, five hours. Yeah, I do. I do wonder how much the pace and speed and time factors into some of that data as well. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Besides just like it feeling in your stomach, also like you're you're burning. If you, The faster you run, this is for anybody, obviously you're going to burn more. Yeah. So that also can trigger some of it. Um, well, well, good for you for figuring that out. How does, and this is something that we're trying to explore more and more on the podcast. And I think that you are uh, uniquely uh, able to provide information on this. What's the 
salt electrolyte situation for you as a runner? I know this is a very individualistic thing, but this part of the reason I want to start talking about it more because I feel like carbs and calories often get talked about and for good reason, but this is some, sometimes this gets left behind. Yeah. Um, so I actually went and got a sweat test done um, a, f- a year ago or so uh, to figure out how much sodium or salt I'm losing per hour. And it turns out it's a ton. Uh, I think it was like 1700 milligrams or something an hour when it's over 55 degrees. Um, Only 55? Yeah, I swear. Wow. I would have thought the temperature limit would be much higher. Okay, wow. Yeah, so I'm a very salty sweater, so I need a ton of electrolytes. So the the Morton that I take for the race doesn't have a ton of sodium in it. So I actually carried a bottle of Scratch Labs um, with me for the first, I guess I finished it by like 11 miles. And that has a much higher concentration of sodium in it. And I also took a um, Scratch Labs has a product called Hyperhydration, which I took the night before. So the same way that I'm carb loading, I'm also sort of sodium loading, if you will, and drinking extra extra salt before and during the race. And you consistently do that in training as well? That I don't always do. It really depends on the weather. So since I was training a lot and it was through the cold, like through the winter, I'm not sweating quite as much. And so I didn't have to worry as much about the sodium loss. If it gets really warm, then yeah, that's something that I will incorporate in training. Yeah, this is such such good information because it really does affect a lot of people. And it has, you know, I really have to figure this part out because I don't know it completely well. But I know even for elite runners, so Harvey Nelson's one of them, James McCurdy, someone who, you know, I know is a good friend of mine who's coached me and I work with him at McCurdy Trained, was saying Harvey, like, again, he's the guy who ran has run sub two fourteen in the marathon, like it got to the point where like that was the limiting factor for him. Like mm-hmm. it was he was getting this fatigue and then like they can't they couldn't figure out what it was. They're like looking at the train and they're like, it doesn't add up. What what is this? And then he goes and gets the salt test or this the sweat test and they're like, oh, no wonder. And it was like such an easy fix once they figured it out. Yeah. I mean that was honestly one of the huge factors in me breaking three for the first time is because I kept getting these calf cramps at like mile 20, 22, 23, every single time. And I I did all this research and I thought it was related to muscle fatigue and some other things. And once I figured out that I was an extremely salty sweater and started um, appropriately hydrating, that that helped a ton. Yeah, we need to get we need to get the the tech people on this, right? We need I, I... We need to find better ways of figuring out the sal- the saltiness of our sweat. I know Gatorade has their patch. I've heard not great things, but this doesn't seem like the hardest thing to measure. I just it, I just don't believe it. I feel like we're on the cusp of someone coming out with a patch. Maybe it's not Gatorade that works well and is easy. And yeah, can we just do the dog test? Like if the dog if your dog is attracted to you <laughs> post run, you're probably a salty sweater. If they're yeah. horrified by your existence post run, then you're probably not that salty of a sweater. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right. All right. So, so you ran 248 at Boston, which is a remarkable achievement. A year ago, you were like sub three. Can I do it? Besides, again, you talked about the mental part. We've talked about you know the, the nutrition. You're you're refining it. You're getting better every time. But you, a lot of this you had dialed in before you broke sub three, and that was part of the reason you were able to do it. What has happened or what has been different in your training? Because 
I know we're throwing out these numbers like sub three, you know, 248. That's 30 seconds a mile in the marathon for someone who is already incredibly fast. I mean, this is a remarkable percentage improvement, and I don't want that to get lost in anyone who's listening to this. So what has changed in your training besides some of the stuff that we've already mentioned, whether it's how you're doing your workouts, the duration, the quality, all of that stuff? Yeah, um, it hasn't changed drastically, to be honest. Like the actual training hasn't changed a ton. Um, I tried to increase my mileage a little bit on this last training block. I have consistently, so I did in between the last time we talked and now complete a half Ironman, which was an experience. Um, Who's better in the water, you or Kafuzi? Because Kafuzi came on here and talked about his water experience and it did not sound enjoyable. So I know that I swam faster than Kafuzi, but I don't, that doesn't, I don't think I'm qualified to say anything about it. That's a pretty low bar. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, we love you. We love you, Mike. Yeah, There's I no do. disrespect, man. I do. Um, so anyway, my point in saying that was that I have been consistently also using my indoor bike trainer um, in the afternoon. So a lot of people will do the double run, uh, you know, a run in the morning and a run in the afternoon. And I tried that for a little while and I just don't think my body responded to it super well, but I liked the idea of still having a workout in the afternoon. So I started doing some cycling, some indoor cycling um, for like 30, 40 minutes in the afternoons to supplement uh, my running. And I did that pretty consistently. And I felt like that helped my recovery. Um, and also obviously, you know, it's going to improve your fitness as well. You're just, you're working out more often. And so that I thought was something that, that probably benefited me quite a bit. Um, and I know we already talked about the nutrition, but because I, I was learning how to really focus on nutrition for performance, I was able to hit paces and hold paces so much longer in training, which not only is beneficial for your fitness, but also mentally, it gave me a lot of confidence heading into these, heading into these races. So when, not like what time of day, but like during the, during like your like running week calendar, when would the double bike come into play? Uh, definitely on workout days. Um, and then, you know, sometimes. Does that include long run or is that like speed workout you're talking? Like speed workout. So on a speed workout day, like I'm very big proponent of keep your hard days hard and your easy days easy. So definitely on a workout day um, and then maybe just another day or two of an easy day, just some supplementation, not like a hard bike workout, but just, you know, some cycling in indoors. Yeah, this is something that some elite runners have mentioned on the podcast. I know every time, every time they mention it, people are like, wait, what? That about the idea of the double on the workout day, not accentuating someone's um, fitness level, but helping with recovery. What? Why is that? I I mean, I don't know the science behind it, but I just think probably the fact that you're getting your, your legs moving and you're using slightly different muscles, but you're sort of keeping them warm and loose. It just seems like it helps the next day. You're not so tight and, and sore from a hard workout. I guess it's kind of the opposite of like, if you've ever come in from a run, this happens to me if I ever run at night, which is, is rare, but if I do... What will happen is I'll come in, I'll run at night, I'll take a shower, then I'll like, I'll just sit on the couch, I'll watch TV, I'll do some work, but I'm basically like, I'm like, my, my back is propped up and my legs are horizontal. 
for maybe 90 straight minutes. Like I don't move, right? I'm just in that spot. And then I will stand up and it's like straight up tin man getting it, like walking across the first floor of my house. Like I look awful. And I guess it's basically the opposite of that, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, and I've, I felt that similarly, like I'll work out in the morning, but then go to work and I'll be sitting for a few hours. And then all of a sudden it's lunchtime and I get up and I'm like, oh, I should not have been sitting for this long. Like, yeah, I think the more you can just be moving, even if it's walking or, you know, like the cycling in the afternoon, it's just, it keeps your, it keeps your muscles fresh and not so tight. All right. I loved your race recap from Boston. And I love one of the interesting parts was you had a goal. You had a very firm goal. You wanted to break 250. This was not a fly by night thing. You mentioned this is your jam. Knock a goal down, pick up a new one. Right. So this was the intention going through the hills of you know, you have the Newton Hills, you have Heartbreak Hill, obviously looking at your time and your pace during that doesn't make a lot of sense because it's all, you know, it's looking at your watch while you're going uphill that serves you zero. Same thing going downhill, right? You're not going to be like, oh, ooh, 555 pace, like, all right, whatever. Like, not, again, not, I'm not running 555. Maybe you were going downhill, but again, you're going to come back up in a second, so it doesn't really matter. So in the last four or five miles at various points, what stopped you from being conscious of the watch, knowing full well that you were going to be pretty close to the time that you had set out to get? Uh, the exact reason that we talked about earlier, that if I looked down and I saw a number on my watch that was slower than I thought I was running or wanted to be running, it probably would have spiraled me into some negative talks of, um, it's not my day. I would have slowed down probably even more. Um, and I just, I didn't, I didn't want to know. I was, my, was running as fast as I thought I could possibly run. And I knew if I went any faster, something horrible was going to happen. Like my body was going to give out. And so I thought that there was absolutely no benefit to looking at my watch and seeing what it said. And you mentioned in the, in the post that there were some twinges here and there in the last couple of miles. Where where were those twinges? Uh, like my upper legs, like around my groin, and like not. It's funny because normally they're always in my calf, and that's not where they were this time. And I'm wondering if that was maybe the hills because I'm usually running on flat flat roads. Um, but yeah, they were like upper legs and like very sudden and but short. And I know like as soon as I tried to pick up the pace, like and tried to push it a little too hard, they would like show up. And so then I would pull back a little bit. It was like this very fine line of like, don't push too hard. Don't give up kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I've ha- I have those on occasion and I this is not my background, but I'm always like, is this to mean that I'm pulling my leg and not pushing off? That's always that's immediately where my, my mind goes to. Like, am I like, am I approaching my stride? Like, p- maybe it looks the same to an outsider, but like, how am I moving forward? Like, which which action am I actually incorporating here? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at the end of a marathon, it's like, hey, all muscles call to action. Like, we don't care. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter at this point. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly it. And I was like, it, with a couple miles to go, it's just you know you can get there. And so it was just sort of like one foot in front of the other. <laughs> now, with the, all your experiences as a runner and all your experiences with Believe in the Run, you've been to so many races. You've had so many different experiences, um, both as a participant, if you were just someone who's at the race for other reasons. What was the electricity like or just the, the – what was Boston like this year? Because from afar, it looked – Again, every every Boston's awesome. It just seemed like it was different this year. 
I mean, I think especially because this is the first time since the pandemic that it's happened in April with full capacity. The weather was amazing. Like all of these factors came into play. And I do think it was, I've only run Boston once before and it was in 2015 and it was like pouring down rain. So not really comparable, but it was the most amazing crowd support I've ever experienced in my entire life. And just everyone seemed like they were there like, and were happy and were, if you were a spectator, you were screaming and cheering. If you were a runner, you had a smile on your face. Like everyone I encountered just made me happy and smile. I love it. And how about just the whole weekend? Cause even like on Friday night, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm an hour away. What am I doing? Why aren't I up there? Like, what is this place? Is all, everything looks to be amazing. I think that was like, you know, Tracksmith had events. Mario was doing it. The New Balance event, the whole thing was just popping off right from the start. Yeah. I mean, we flew in Friday and went straight to the New Balance, uh, the track that New Balance debuted this, this weekend. We watched the world record happen. Um, for the relay and yeah, Saturday we, we saw all the brands on Newberry street. Everyone had pop-up shops. We did a shakeout run on Sunday. Like the whole weekend was packed with really fun activities, which I was a little bit worried about come Sunday thinking I was about to run the next day. Um, but I, I was very super low key on Sunday and still was able to enjoy like everything the weekend had. All right. Last question before we get going. And thank you so much for, for staying up late with me tonight and doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, I couldn't talk to you without talking a little bit about shoes. So people who know you and follow Believe in the Run know that you are an Alpha Fly person, you know, all the time. And you've, you certainly race in other shoes. And I know you guys do do awesome brand partnerships at certain events, which is really exciting to see. With that said, Alpha Fly at Boston, was there ever a second guess about what that shoe was going to be? No. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, so let me ask you, because it's some people love that shoe and there's other people who, even Nike athletes who say, Hey, no, no, the, for me, it's the vapor fly, not the alpha fly. So for, what about for you makes alpha fly King? I love the way it fits. So I have a little bit of a wider foot and I just feel like the alpha fly is a little bit more accommodating than the vapor fly. And then also the bounce in the alpha fly from the AirPods and the, the plate, just that combination, it just feels so much better to me than the, than the Vaporfly. So you weren't a fan of the Vaporfly or it's just like you like the Vaporfly, but this is on another level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If I didn't know about the alpha fly, I'd probably still race in the Vaporfly. But now that I have the alpha fly, I would never go back. I love it. Yeah. So you can't get your hands on the alpha fly too. There's people running in them. I know. You put, what's going on? You you literally work at the preeminent shoe review company. You know, Nike is one of those brands that they just Nike. They do what they want. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, on your recommendation, because I was worried about the Vaporfly. Because, you know, someone puts them on and this is one of the rare super shoes that you can try on. Right? They have them at Dick's. You can go to Dick's Sporting Goods and they're there. And it's like, it's a unique situation. I remember putting them on being like, I don't know about the arch. I don't know about this. But I knew that you would like them. Like, she has a wider foot than I do. And she's okay with this arch. Maybe this is something to work. And you you said, hey, once you start running in them, you're not going to notice that weird feeling that you notice when you try them on. I ran 14 miles in them today, Megan. I got them on StockX. And I liked them. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Amazing. I love it. So is this is this uh, Eugene Marathon race day shoe? 
Yeah, all right, so so May 1st, Eugene Marathon, running in 10 days or so. Yeah, it's April 21st. Yeah, 10 days. Um, I think it could be, for sure. So the old standby for me is the New Balance RC Elite 2. I think that's just my favorite shoe of all time because I think you can do anything in it. It's so comfy. It's so accommodating. It feels like a daily trainer. It's just awesome. I love that shoe so much, and it's so durable. I have over 150 miles on it, and you would never know. It just yeah. is great. I did get – so. I think the fastest shoe I own, I own all the super shoes except for the Hoka's and the Alpha Fly. I own, I've tried all, all of them on. And I think the fastest shoe is the Audios Pro 2. I love that shoe. I think Light Strike Pro is the best foam. I 100% love it. The problem is, is the rod on my right foot, the way I land, the rod underneath the ball of my foot, it irritates it. I can't run in it. I can't go more than three miles without having to stop and walk and adjust and then go again. If it had a plate in there with the Light Strike Pro 2, it would be my shoe. No question about it. Because even my left foot's fine. It's not an issue. But it's on my right foot, it is. And I can't run in it. So for me, it's a three-horse race. It was the New Balance RC Elite 2 because I know it will not be an issue. And it's still really, really good. Yeah. Um, I do have the Puma Deviate Elite. I did get, because they, they they restocked them a couple months ago. I was able to purchase it. God, that shoe is awesome. It's so comfortable. It's so easy to run. It's so accommodating. Like, if you're not if you're not into, man, this is a really long answer. If you're someone <laughs> who's never tried carbon-plated shoes and you try the Puma Deviate Elite, you're going to like it. It's, it's, I think it definitely has the most flexible carbon plate of all of them. And then I would say the Vaporfly has the second most flexible plate. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those three. I'm I'm kind I'm deciding. I'm not I'm not 100% sure. So, I love that we're this close and you're still deciding. That's amazing. I know. Cuz that's the thing cuz I like all three of them very very much. The Asics MetaSpeed Sky, I'm a big Asics fan. I love Asics as a brand. For me there's just a couple problems. It's like first of all like it's so stiff. It's like, it is, you can't bend it. Yeah, I think it's just also that the plate is so close to the foot um, that you really feel it in that shoe. Yeah, and I just don't run fast enough at marathon pace where the stiffness of the shoe would help. Sure. Like, I think if I was, I know this, if I, I've worn it at a half marathon um, or I've worn it for workouts where it's like, all right, I can, this is, I'm flying with this shoe on and I'm all about it. But at marathon pace, I'm like, this just doesn't quite sit right for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So what are you gonna do? Um, I think those are I think those are the three. If I had to guess, I'm saying I'm probably going to wear the Vaporfly, is 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 my guess. So I've done I've done a 14 miler and then last week I did uh, I did a five mile time trial, but ten miles on the day, all in the shoe. So I did the warm-up and cool down in it. So I've put 25, 24 miles on it. And I haven't had any any issues with it. The lockdown is not great. I, I would say the lockdown is the worst of the three options, which makes me worried for like this is an irrational fear. Boy, I am this is the longest answer in the history of the podcast. The it, it makes me worried about debris because I've never run the streets of Eugene. It's like I run on a bike path for a lot of this stuff, and there's not there's no rocks, there's nothing. Where it's like I can see the gaps along my ankle, and I'm like, it's going to be so easy for little like rocks to get in there. Whereas the other two fit really nicely along the edge. I'm like, is that a is that like a um, a tiebreaker for me? I don't know. I will tell you, I had the same fears about the Vaporfly Upper um, 
just because it never really fit right. Like you right. said, like it doesn't hug your ankles correctly. Like it just, the upper is, in my opinion, not the best upper at all for any of the super shoes. Um, but I always chose it because I felt like the midsole outsole was superior than a lot of the other shoes, especially a couple of years ago. Um, but I never had an issue out on the run. It, it oh, was okay. more like aesthetics than actual performance with the upper. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird it's a weird upper. It's it, so, it seems like, how is this? I don't know. It's so funny because like, this is the second version of the shoe. You're like, how did this, how did this not get past the first, the first iteration? You know, <laughs> but I, I guess it's like, if you're, if you're a slave to the, I need this shoe to be super light gods, then yeah. there's going to be things that you, that you miss. But at the same time, Puma hit it because it's just, it's the same weight as the Vaporfly. Yep. Um, New Balance just said, screw it. We're just going to make the most comfortable super shoe and that's just going to be our niche. Yeah. And they hit it because it's yeah. unbelievable. If I was wearing, if I was going to do ultra running and I was on a place where I could just wear a normal road shoe, I would pick the New Balance any day of the week. It's just, I could wear that shoe for days at any pace. Yeah. I love I it. I was surprised. Did you see the, the BA 5K? The guy who won it was wearing the New Balance RC yeah. Elite too. I was surprised. Yeah. It's not the fastest shoe. I know. I didn't. I didn't think they were going to be wearing that either. But it was amazing, and especially the the custom um, or the what you call it. Is it the district one, or was that yeah. is that the all black, or is it both? Uh, I don't remember now. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Can can Ben Johnson? We have Ben Johnson. Can we get Ben Johnson in here to tell us? Um, yeah, because it's not it's not the fastest shoe I own for sure. But it um, so I was surprised when 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 he wore that because like, New Balance does make some faster. 5k shoes but yeah hey, thank whatever. You. yeah whatever well megan thank you so much for coming on the show the, you're awesome and you're such a good friend i should say this people don't know I, i'll shoot megan questions every once in a while she's always so helpful to me about the podcast and everything and running thank you for everything you do you are awesome thank you so much it was fun fun to chat and catch up Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. Go check out all of her work over on Believe in the Run. They do just such great stuff. And as someone who loves running shoes, um, I can't stop checking them out both on their website. Uh, their written reviews are fantastic. They also have YouTube reviews as well. The written reviews are just so specific and they have a lot of contributors and they really dive into it. And I just, I love the written reviews so much. They do an excellent, excellent job. Um, those are my favorite reviews um, to read are their written reviews and I just get so much information from them because they have so many contributors and they really take deep dives uh, and their writing is always fun and exciting too. It's not too dry, which is also a huge positive. So Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you listeners for checking it out all the way to the end. Thank you so much for sticking around. I love you guys so much. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.